0: just going to go through the list and then hopefully get to the ordinances. Uh, the good thing about spending the whole day together <clears throat> is that uh, I don't have to stay within the time frame. We can bleed one thing over to another. <clears throat> uh, so uh, I think uh, that was number eight, fear and anger. Uh, <clears throat> number nine, lean in, not away when you are hurt and challenged. Uh, I, I can't emphasize this one enough. Your natural reaction is gonna to be to withdraw. When you're hurt, when someone challenges your leadership, you're just gonna to wanna to sort of crawl into a hole somewhere. You can't do it. You, you're gonna to have to be with the people that are challenging you. I will tell you, relationship building is so very important. And I'll, I'll tell you a little thing that I have learned to use, and it helps tremendously. When people question my decisions, <clears throat> I, will, I will say to them, look, you might be right. I may have made the wrong decision. This might not be the best thing. But I need to know that you at least trust my heart. That you know that I'm trying to do the right thing, that I'm trying to honor the Lord, and typically they'll go, "Oh yeah, I, I didn't question your motive, your heart." And I said, "Well, then we really have no problem. You're you're welcome to question my decisions, because I'm not infallible." And when they see that, first of all, you admit that you own that; <clears throat> secondly, that you. Uh, You know, that you're just trying to do the right thing. It often, it just lessens the tension. And they'll go, well, you know, I think the pastor blew it on that decision. But I know he's trying to follow the Lord. He's trying to honor the Lord. And if you will do that, just remind them from time to time, trust my heart. You're welcome to question my decisions. But trust my heart. I think God will use that in a way that will bond you to those people. And again, those, those flashpoints are the times of growth. If you come through it where someone questions you, but you come out of it, you emerge from that <clears throat> as still friends or pastor and church member, and you love one another, trust one another, even if you don't agree, you're going to be stronger. And they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. So lean in when you're hurt and challenged. And I I do what I call changing the conversation. Uh, Understand this, that a lot of times when they question one decision, that, you know, three weeks from now, we're all going to be talking about something else. It feels so bleak at the moment. But just get through it. You know, just... You'll have a few sleepless nights. It'll bug you. You know I don't care if 100 people at church pat you on the back, <clears throat> say you're the greatest preacher they've ever heard, the greater past, the greatest pastor they've ever seen. But one guy says you jerk. When you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, I'll tell you which one of them you're thinking about. So, just know this: you'll get through it. The conversation will change. And sometimes I even do something to change the conversation. So start a new initiative. Uh, Do something that just sort of embraces your congregation. Uh, But use it as a a strengthening, not as a weakening, all right? Number 10, you have to be in the room. You have to be in the room. In other words especially early in your tenure. Uh, Don't let meetings happen that you're not there. You got to be there. And a lot of times when you're in the room, things go the way you want them to. When you're not, they don't. It's just that simple. It's not that you're having to uh, exercise some extraordinary leadership. It's just that things go the way you want when you're in the room. It's amazing. So... Just be there. Show up. Showing up is a big part of pastoral success. Number uh, 11. Keep yourself as the underdog. Not the heavy. Now, this is counterintuitive because a lot of guys think in order to be the leader, they have to look like the leader. But the reality is uh, people cheer for the underdog. So if you're, you go into a church where there's a power base, you know, you, there's a way for you. If you go in there just like gangbusters and you're going to take them on, then you just set up tension. But if you go in and you're patient and, uh, you know, you from time to time in the meeting say things like, uh, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to be faithful Uh, I understand that you know you you've got your own perspective but in some ways you know you're making it hard for me to serve you 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 learn to say things that are not aggressive but let people know they're making it hard for you and the fair-minded people hear that now they're behind you they're on your side because these people are making it rough for you you're the underdog not the heavy I will tell you the one place in your ministry where it's almost impossible to do that is when you have to fire someone <clears throat> because I don't care if you fire a guy who was uh, a narcoleptic axe murderer. <laughs> Somebody's going to say you did him dirty. When you fire somebody, you're the heavy. They they hurt for his family. They the, the stress that they're going through, and they'll act like you did something wrong. So it's, even then, you have to show that you did what you had to do, it wasn't what you wanted to do, you tried everywhere in the world to avoid it, but you were your back was up against the wall, you had to do it. You do everything you can to keep yourself from looking like the bully. Whatever the situation, try and look like the underdog. <clears throat> um, number 12 you don't have to be in control. Again, you think you do, but you don't have to be in control. Uh, You need to learn to lose some strategic battles. Certain things that just don't matter enough for you to stake your leadership on them, and you need to let them happen. Um, one time when I was pastor in Lexington we had an offer from American family Association radio they wanted to put a tower on our property in return for this we would get 60 a 60 second ad every hour from this repeater station in Lexington that was a great idea cost us nothing they were going to use property we weren't using uh, and it would bring another Christian radio station to Lexington I thought it was a win all the way around. I came into our deacon meeting and told him this, and had a list of the programs that were on uh, this American Family Radio. <clears throat> one of them was the Methodist Hour, and I had a deacon look at that, and he said, "Pastor, this says they broadcast the Methodist Hour. Yeah, it's one of many programs they broadcast. Well, we can't we can't support that. Well, we're not supporting that." We're, That, you know, that's just a list of the programs that are on it. Not us supporting it. We just give them a tower. It's still Christian radio. Yeah, but we're Baptist. Yeah, I I know, but, you you know, we're not letting them come in and preach in our pulpit. It's just, it's a radio program. Yeah, but we can't do that. I don't understand. We're right now on WVLK, which is a, a secular station that broadcasts all kinds of ungodly music. And that doesn't trouble you, but the Methodist hour does? Yeah, that's, that's bad. <laughs> <clears throat> and, <clears throat> man, we debated this thing for over an hour. Finally, it comes to a vote, and they split right down the middle. And the chairman of Deacons always voted with me, so he was about to cast his vote to do it. And I stopped it. I said, look, I withdraw the suggestion." I said, we don't have to do this. It's not key. It's not essential to our ministry. Uh, I think it's a good idea. But, man, if I can't convince you guys, I sure don't want this hitting the floor in a business meeting. So I'm just going to withdraw it. Now, my predecessor had never withdrawn anything. He would fight to the death. And if he got a one-vote win, he'd take it. When they saw I wasn't going to play that game, I never again had a divided vote. After that, Uh, you you just have to be willing to say some things don't matter. Uh, You let them happen. It's like, okay, that's not key. It's not what I like. We moved into our new building at Buck Run, and we had a bunch of stuff. We're not going to put out literature racks in this building. You know, there's some things that get trashy in your building after a while. We said, we're not doing that. Uh, We're not accepting donations of Furniture, or anything, you know, we don't want junk for Jesus. All this stuff we said. <clears throat> we look out the window one day and there's a, a landscaping crew. And they're digging and they've already planted plants. And there's this big boulder. They brought a crane out and put this boulder. And I'm like, what is happening? And an old lady, or an older lady in our church had decided to put in a prayer garden in memory of her husband. She didn't ask. She just did it. All right. Now, what's my value here? Right? I can throw my weight around and say, get rid of that. We don't want this boulder. We don't want this prayer garden. It's just something else to keep up. And I'm going to tell you, we've been in that building three years. I don't think I've ever seen anybody out there praying. Have any of you guys ever seen anybody praying in that prayer garden? And the day she goes home to be with the Lord, it's gone. (laughs) But for now, it's there. You know, what are you going to do? I'm just like, I can be the guy that ticks her off and... Sort of disregards her gift. I, I, none of us like it. We all, what? But it just wasn't worth the fight. It, it's, it's not essential to our ministry. Uh, it, it, it wasn't big enough that it set a precedent. People sort of know what happened. They like Noah's sons walking backwards to cover uh, their father's nakedness. Everybody just sort of walks backwards around that prayer garden. But I, I'm convinced I did the right thing. It it ended up costing me nothing but an ugly prayer garden. But it didn't cost me leadership chips, right? So uh, you don't have to be in control. Learn to lose battles gracefully. They'll respect you, love you, follow you all the more when they see you don't always have to have your way, especially on non-essential things. Uh and number 13, right along with that, apologize when you're wrong. I had a guy tell me one time, well, if I apologize, they'll think I'm I'm weak and make bad decisions. I said, No, dude, they already know you're weak and make bad decisions. They know that. They just like to know that you know it. So if you'll learn to apologize and say, forgive me, I I blew it on that. Uh I I had anger or I made the wrong decision. We tried a second campus for three years, wore our people out, didn't do what we hoped it would accomplish. The end of those three years, I said, church, we tried that, didn't do what we think it should do. We're bringing it all back to this campus. And no one said a word. When I came to Buck Run, they already had plans drawn up for a new building. They'd spent a hundred grand on that. I'm the guy that killed those plans. And nobody said a word. And I'm convinced it's because they also saw that I was willing to not have I didn't have to have my way. I just told them the truth. So if if you learn to have a humility about you that apologizes when you're wrong, that does not demand your way, you you don't throw temper tantrums. They'll trust you. Even when they disagree with you, they'll follow you. They'll give you the benefit of the doubt. All right? So apologize when you're wrong. Number 14, plead guilty when people point out your shortcomings. My predecessor was the quintessential pastor. If somebody sneezed at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Bob Jackson showed up with a hanky by 2.15. Uh, I mean, he was, I've never seen anybody like him. I can't tell you the number of times somebody came in my office and said, you know, we think you're a really great preacher, but when it comes to being a pastor, you're no Bob Jackson. I never once resented that. I never got upset with that. I just said, man, I aspire to be as good a pastor as Bob Jackson. Just plead guilty. Don't argue with them. Don't get defensive. Don't push back. They say, well, you know, you preached too long. Yeah, I'm I'm working on that. I agree with you. I think I need to cut it back some. You pray with me that I'll be able to be more disciplined. Just just plead guilty. And, again, they they just like to know that you know your faults. And if you get in that defensive posture, it's going to hurt your leadership. Uh, Number 15, Be transparent, but without being whiny. So let people know your shortcomings or your struggles, but don't do it in a way that's whiny. Uh, Everybody's got their own problems and their own struggles, and nobody wants to have a pastor that's just always whining. So there's a way to be transparent that does not come across as poor me. And you've got to find that balance. Uh, look, BuckRun lets me do a lot. <clears throat> I'm Dean here. Uh, people at Buck Run talk about how busy I am. You never hear me talk to them about how busy I am. Nobody wants to hear me complain about that because that's my choice. Right? So I consciously don't ever say, oh, I'm so busy. People come to me and they say, you know... I, I'd like to talk to you, but I know you're so busy. I have a standard response to that. And that is, look, you're right, I'm busy, but I want to be busy doing the right thing. And man, talking to you and helping you is always the right thing. So yeah, let's make that happen. I, don't, I try not to use my busyness as an excuse. I don't whine about it. I don't tell them how full my life is and I'm just so worn out and tired. They don't want to hear that. And I think it weakens my leadership to do it. So... Be transparent. Say, "Man, I'm you know I've got some struggles. Just pray for me." But by the grace of God, I'm going to be faithful, and have a positive perspective even when you share your difficulties. All right, don't don't be whiny. Nobody wants a whiny preacher. And number sixteen, don't be uptight. Don't be uptight. I'll I'll warn you that. Your church is going to take on your personality. The longer you're there, the more like you that church is going to be. So if you're uptight, they're going to be uptight. Uh, and part of why I'm saying this is I want you to understand, like when it comes to worship, you, the pastor, you are the de facto worship leader. I don't, I don't care... If you've got another guy you call the worship leader, you're the guy. And they're not going to be any freer in worship than you are. And if you're uptight, they're uptight. And while I'm on it, here's York's soapbox. Don't be looking at your sermon notes during the worship service. I hate that. Man, you need to be engaged. Don't you want to pastor a people who genuinely worship Christ, who love the songs of Zion and they unite their hearts. So you can't be the guy going, okay, you all do that while I'm looking over my notes. What that communicates is that that stuff's not really important. I'm the main show here. Now, I do believe preaching is the central act of worship, but uh, I believe that the corporate worship of the songs flows from the preaching of the word and I, as the pastor, need to be engaged. If I want them free to lift their hands, I'm gonna be free to lift my hands. And Buck Run has become multi-ethnic, and we've got uh, African-American members now that just light the place up, and it's changed our worship. I love it. So when an African-American member joined who is extremely vocal in the, in the worship and in the preaching, if I in any way act uptight about that or react to that, like, where's that coming from? Who's doing that? Guess what everybody else is going to do? I'll I tell you a funny story. Uh, when I pastored in Lexington, the Lord just really came down. We had a lot of people get saved. We were an evangelism explosion church and trained our people to share the gospel. Most people I baptized were led to Christ by our members. <clears throat> there was a gal in church in, in town, I used to see her name on local bars and uh, like the Continental, they used to have a big lounge and, you know, it'd be uh, this woman's name appearing there. And somebody in our church led her and her husband to the Lord. She'd been make, making her living in Lexington for 20 years as a lounge singer. And she was good. They got saved, they joined, and were baptized. And about three weeks later, they came to see me and she said, "I, I can't do this anymore. Now, nobody told her, you need to quit your job. You need to quit your career. This was her conviction. She was like, I'm, I'm around stuff that I think is inconsistent with following Christ, and we're going to have to come up with a new career. Man, 20 years in, that's a big deal. Her husband was her band leader. So they they walked away from a very successful local musical career. And she loved singing. She was fantastic. And here she was, a baby Christian, she, she came, Chuck Henderson was uh, my associate pastor, and uh, our, we had lost a worship pastor, so Chuck was filling in, and he had all he could say grace over. She came to him, and she said, hey, I'd like to sing at church on Sunday, uh, on a Sunday. And Chuck said, he knew she had been a professional singer, he said, sure, that'd be great, and he scheduled her, what he didn't do was find out what she was singing. And so, you know, the, it's, it's that slot right before I preach. The choir's gone down, and she comes out. And the first thing, she comes from off the platform, and I noticed she was dressed like a lounge singer. I mean, it wasn't immodest. It was just flashy, right? And she comes out. She looks so confident, just right at home. The music starts, and it goes dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. Dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. And she's moving, man. She's got this move. I'm sitting there on the platform going, "That, that sounds like Stand By Me. And she starts singing, when the night has come. And I go, yeah, that's Stand By Me. That's what that is. That's exactly what that is. And she, I mean, man, she's just doing it. And she gets to the chorus. The only thing she changes in the whole song, she gets to the chorus. She goes, so Jesus, Jesus, stand by me. Whoa, won't you stand by me. Now, I know at this point, nobody's looking at her. Where are they looking? They're looking at me. And I know this. I also know that this is like like a little child. Taking their toy and offering it to their parent. Here, Daddy, and given Does Daddy want that toy? Daddy didn't want that toy, didn't need that toy. But what's Daddy do? Thank you, honey. He takes that toy. And here's a baby Christian offering to the Lord the only thing she has, which is her talent. She doesn't know hymns. She doesn't know who Sandy Patty is. She knows Stand By Me. And now. She's sung these songs about lovers, and she's in love with Jesus, and she sings it to Jesus. And I know this. And I know that if I react badly, the whole congregation will be uptight, and she'll be crushed. So you know what I'm doing on the platform? I'm going, dah, dah, dah. Inside, I'm dying. Inside, I'm going, this is, this is the historic pulpit of the great Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, and she's singing, stand by me. But I know this isn't her fault. Now, tomorrow I'm going to kill Chuck Henderson. (laughs) But I'm I'm not going to do anything to hurt her. Right? If I'm uptight, they're uptight. If I'm okay, they're okay. If I worship freely, they worship freely. So, guys, don't be uptight. If something happens that... Is a little unusual, or you don't like, or you know, just man. Again, don't let them smell fear or anger. Let's add a third category. Don't let them smell uptight on you. Roll with it. Just know that this—it's okay. You know, there's going to be another Sunday, and you can straighten things out. Somebody does something that they shouldn't do. We're going to be okay. I can—I can handle this. I can teach past this through this, over this, around this, whatever I need to do, I'm just not going to freak out because if I do, they will. And and, and just learn that. All right? Uh, Number uh, 17, don't insist on uniformity in non-essentials. Now, obviously, you're going to have to define what your non-essentials are But let me just talk turkey here on a personal level. Uh, Most people know I am a five-point Calvinist. I go the whole way. But Buck Run is not a five-point Calvinist church, and I'm not trying to make it one. And I want people who do not have my view of the atonement completely comfortable and welcome at Buck Run. So we have the conversation. When people, we have interviews with them and we, I tell them where I am, but I tell them, look, you're welcome to not see that quite like I do. You will never be demeaned. You're not going to be treated like a second-class Christian here. Uh, there's a difference in teaching differently than me and teaching against me. I have no problem. Jeff Pennington my, was my exec pastor. He now pastors First Baptist Church in Smyrna, Georgia. Jeff was a three-pointer on a good day, and we never had a problem. I, it never bothered me. If Jeff taught a class and he said, now, the pastor sees this passage this way, and I see it differently, but, you know, we, we, just, we just don't divide over that. That's healthy. That's good. I have no problem with that. That's a very different thing than saying, well, I can't believe the way the pastor sees this, and, you know, and misrepresenting what I believe, that. That's a character. I don't caricature somebody who sees that differently than I do. I try and be honest about their view, and I want to express it as well as they do. And so at Buck Run, we're just not going to divide over Calvinism. I've been there 16 years. If we were going to do it, we'd have done it by now. I had a, 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 sort of a, an associate pastor on staff one time. He said, hey, want to get us on this Reformed website and this? And I said, no. I said, Look, I'm all for those guys. I got nothing. You know, that, That's my tribe. But what good does that do Buck Run? You know, we, our original doctrinal statement from 1818 is a very Reformed statement, and that's good enough. I, I, just, I just let that go. And I preach what I preach. I don't avoid it, but I, I'm just comfortable with somebody seeing it differently than I do. I think that's the best way to be. Why do I want to make that more narrow? Now, there are things that I am narrow on. There are things that I say beyond that I can't go. If you... If you don't believe in the atonement at all, you're not going to fit a buck run, right? You've got to believe in the substitutionary atonement because you're going to hear that just about every week that he died for our sins. But whether you believe that he died for all the sins of all the world or you believe that he died for the sins of the elect, we, you know we can serve Jesus together and win lost people together just fine. And so we're just I'm relaxed about that. I have what I call relaxed concern and I would have a problem with anybody in our church who makes it an issue, whichever side of it they're on. And that's sort of the tenor that we take, the tone that we set, and I've, I think it's healthy. So you need, to, uh, you need to decide what are the lines that you, know, you, you can't live outside of those. But let me, let me remind you, the purpose of a doctrinal statement is to make it as broad as you can live with, not as narrow as you want it. I think we flip that sometimes. We we try and we want to define everything and make it narrow. No. The purpose of a doctrinal statement is to say, how big a tent can we have? Beyond this, we can't go. This, this is who we are. And within this, there's room for disagreement. So if your church has a doctrinal statement, Live with it. Don't, don't have a, a, doctrine, a doctrinal statement within the doctrinal statement. Live with what you have. Uh, don't insist on uniformity. Uh, conversely, number 18, do not fear offending people with the truth. Don't fear offending people with the truth. Listen, you're not going to be able to preach the atonement baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, marriage, gender. You're not gonna be able to preach those things without offending somebody these days. So you better be okay with that. But uh, because the truth is inherently offensive. But this brings me to number 19, fear offending people with your personality. All right? Here's the two sides of this truth. Don't be afraid of offending people with the truth, but you ought to live in terror of the offense being you and your tone and your personality and the way you do things. Because I, when I preach on homosexuality, I want anybody that's there that has same-sex attraction to know I love them. That they're welcome in my life, in my home, at my table. They can't put that narrative of hate on me because I love them. I enjoy their company. I I don't resent them. That tone has to be there. And the only thing left for them to get mad at is the truth, which they very well may and do. I'll tell you, I was on... Uh, a program on KET, Kentucky Educational Television, the PBS affiliate, uh, and opposite Chris Hartman, the head of the Fairness Alliance. He's, he's gay. <clears throat> and in that discussion that night, I tried to be so kind. When it was over, man, Chris Hartman was just, uh, he was all over me, trying to put that narrative on me. I got an email from a gay lawyer who is like head of the the, uh, diversity initiative for for the Kentucky Bar Association. He wrote me an email and he said, I am so embarrassed by the way you were treated and I so appreciate the way you responded and I will never give another dime to the Fairness Alliance. And that guy has been here to Southern Seminary to hear me preach in chapel twice since then. He's been in my home. We've had lunch together. He counts me a dear friend. And we built a relationship. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, and I, it was all because of the way I responded. That's what we've got to do. So I'm not afraid of people being offended by the truth, but I, I live in fear that they'll be offended by me. So I've got to carefully think through how I proclaim the truth. Uh, Make sure your declaration of truth is clear, humble, and biblical. Don't be loud, arrogant, carry a chip on your shoulder. One last thing, just sort of a random thing. Don't say anything bad, negative, about your predecessor. Again, I don't care if he was a narcoleptic axe murderer you find something good to say about him, you say, boy, he knew how to sharpen an ax better than anybody <laughs> I ever met. Listen, I don't, I don't care if he split the church. I don't care if he ran off with a secretary. It doesn't matter what. They know. They'll say it. Don't you say it. Because if you do, it makes you look petty and insecure and it lowers you in the esteem of your church members. Even if they're sort of trying to suck you into the conversation, just don't do it. You gain nothing by saying negative things. You might have to deal with some messes he left. Deal with it. But never look like you're pronouncing something about him because, again, I guarantee you there are people in the church that love him. I don't care if he did run off with the secretary. So... You, you just do your job. You look forward, not backward. Don't say anything negative about him. Now, this is just sort of my random <clears throat> counterintuitive things uh, that I wanted to get, uh, get out there. I'm going to jump right in to our discussion about uh, ecclesiology because I, I, I'm seeing this as a, as a problem. I think we've got a lot of Baptist churches that don't know, first of all, what a church is, and don't really understand the ordinances because they're simply not being taught. So I just want to walk you through some things that I think we need to address, and I want to talk to you about how to teach this in the church. Uh, first thing about baptism, because this is going to come up, Let's say you're pastoring a small church. Man, you, you need to grow. You need to reach new people and young families. And one day, an Audi A8 pulls up and out gets a, a doctor and his wife, who is a CEO of a local company, and their two children. And they come into the service. And after they come to you, they go, Wow. We've been looking for a church where there's expository preaching and man, you're a great preacher. We just so enjoyed that so much and boy, I mean, your heart goes pitter pat. This is exactly the kind of people you need and uh, maybe they come back two or three times, you schedule a visit with them and you go and find out that, you know, when you visit with them, they give a credible testimony of their salvation, they've trusted Christ And they were baptized in a church of Christ. And they say, now we want to join your church, but we don't want to be baptized again. We believe our baptism is in order. I'm telling you, you're going to have, if you wait till that moment to make the decision about how you're going to deal with that, I can tell you how you'll deal with that. So I just want to remind you what we as Baptists believe about the ordinances and talk to you about how to talk to people about it. So what is scriptural baptism? <clears throat> first of all, and I'll go through this quickly, and we'll break at what time we break Quarter till? Twelve. Quarter till 12? Twelve at 12 o'clock, all right. So um, first thing is you have to have a proper candidate, which we Baptists believe is a what? A believer. We're credo Baptist, not paedo-baptists. Uh, though I consider myself a covenant theologian, it does not extend to baptism be, being equivalent to circumcision. So we are credo-baptists. We believe there has to be a proper candidate, and that means it has to be a person who has genuinely put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Secondly there's a proper mode that is immersion. Third, a proper purpose. Now here's where it starts to get fuzzy. The Baptist faith and message clearly states that this is a symbolic act. Now if you put that in the definition then you are saying any baptism that purports to be something other than symbolic is not, in fact, baptism. I mean, you just, you can't conclude anything else. When you define it as a symbolic act, that means any church that says repentance and faith and baptism, all three are essential for salvation, is not, in fact, administering this baptism. Now, that's going to make for some tough conversations. But it's the right conversation because uh, I'm responsible to tell them the truth. I'm not responsible for their obedience, but I'm responsible to tell them the truth and to say, well, look, you know, you, the church where you were baptized teaches that baptism is essential to And a part of salvation. Let me grab a sip of coffee here. And our church believes that this is a symbolic act that is a testimony. It's not efficacious. It's why we don't call these sacraments. And I would encourage you, if you're a Baptist, to not use that word to describe baptism in the Lord's Supper. Because a sacrament is by definition a means of receiving grace. And we don't believe anything real is conveyed in the ordinances. We believe it's symbolic. We believe the ordinance pictures what the grace of God has already conveyed through faith. So if its purpose is symbolic then anything again that purports to be not symbolic in fact sacramental is not doesn't fit this definition and therefore is not baptism and then it gets even harder for some baptists to accept a fourth thing is the proper authority so who who has the authority to baptize Every now and then I talk to somebody, and they got saved uh, at Myrtle Beach. Uh, some student group witnessed to them, and they trusted the Lord, and then they took them right out there in the ocean and dunked them. And there was no church involved. And then later, maybe years later, they present themselves for membership, and they say that's what happened then here's the question. Are they scripturally baptized? I'm going to say no. Because again, I I agree with the Baptist Faith and Message. Obviously, I've signed it here at Southern Seminary. And that that is that it is a church ordinance. And so if there was no church involved, it was not properly administered. There was not the proper authority. Or if it was administered by a group that calls itself a church but they're not preaching the gospel uh, if they're not a church of what Baptists have historically called like faith and order then I would discount their baptism I'd say probably we would say they they're lacking proper baptism on two of those both purpose and authority now I'm going to be the first to admit to you that there are lines that have to be drawn here that the New Testament does not give us clear definition on because you didn't have multiple denominations when the New Testament was written. So if someone was baptized in a, like, uh, I'll call a name here. uh, The Emmanuel Baptist Church in Frankfurt denies the atonement Mocks the atonement, uh, denies the virgin birth, all kinds of things. The pastor published much on this. He loves Marcus Borg He's sort of in that camp. They got the name Baptist on the sign out front. But I would not receive their baptism because they're not a church of true like faith. Right? So it's not about the name Baptist there's no authority in the name Baptist. The authority's in the doctrine. By the same token, if there's a church, let's say a Bible church, that's preaching the same doctrine that Buck Run preaches, I would receive their baptism because why would I not? They preach the same doctrine. It's not about the name. Uh, And there are, I know of a church, a Church in Lexington that has the name Christian, but they're completely reformed. They preach the gospel. They're not part of that, uh, re- the uh, restoration movement of Alexander Campbell. They got the name Christian, but I would accept their baptism. They are a church of like faith and order. So this means sometimes we have to do a little investigating. Where were you baptized? What was the doctrine of that church? And uh, you, you've got to ask. And sometimes that, again, uh, is a hard conversation. But I believe as the pastor, I owe it to those people to have that conversation and to tell them whether or not I think they need to be rebaptized. Uh, now I'm just going to throw this open for questions because I'm going to guess that some of you have, have one. Anybody? Hmm. Yeah uh, This is a great question So what if they're baptized in a church That doesn't believe in eternal security basically That's one of those areas Where you're going to have to decide And draw a line That the New Testament's not clear about Do you in fact Believe <clears throat> That if Someone preaches you can lose your salvation Is that another gospel That's the question. Southern Baptists have struggled with this. The IMB has changed their policy to a more restrictive policy that said you have to be baptized in a church that believes in eternal security. When David Platt became the president, they changed it back. And that is no longer the IMB policy. I was a trustee at the time and voted against changing it back uh, because I, I... My answer to that is yes. I think they need to be baptized in a church that believes in eternal security. But again, I will say that's largely deduction. Um, And this is where you have to be persuaded in your mind before you have someone sitting across the table from you asking the question. Does that make sense? So I think so. I, I, I say if you teach that you can lose your salvation I think that's really not the gospel that's a hard line to draw I know not everybody draws it but that's where I am other other questions yeah does it matter if the person had a, a proper belief so they say I was Gr- baptized in this church Christian church but I understand yeah the faith no, uh, that, that's a great question I'm going to say no Because, again, the authority to baptize is in the church. And so if they were, they're being baptized by somebody. Remember this, baptism always means identification. So they were baptized unto Moses in the sea and the cloud. They identified with Moses. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's identifying with judgment. So when a church baptizes, they, they are of necessity identifying with the, that church. And so it, to me, it's like a uniform. When Michael Jordan came out of retirement to play for the Wizards, he couldn't keep wearing the Chicago Bulls uniform. He, he had to identify with his team. And I, I use that illustration sometimes just to show, you know, you, you identified with a church that we think is fundamentally wrong so we're asking you to identify with what this church preaches and teaches, which is the very thing that's drawing you to this church. And you just put it that way. Yes, sir. The proper authority is the church. What about, could you go a little more specific? What about the person who is baptized? Great question. So the authority is in the church. So I think whoever the church authorizes to baptize, can they basically, it, it's not the person that's baptizing, it's the church. So at uh, Buck Run, um, sometimes uh, someone has gotten, trusted the Lord, whose grandfather was a Baptist preacher, and the family says, you know, can our grandfather baptize? And we'll vote to grant them the authority on our behalf to baptize. It's still Buck Run doing it. It's just A brother that we've authorized to do it. Our pastors are all authorized to baptize on behalf of the church. When my grandson, uh, no, I'm taking, uh, I take that back. Um, A young man that worked for my son uh, trusted the Lord. We authorized my son Seth to baptize him. So uh, the authorities in the church. I I went to seminary with a guy who one day in chapel got saved. And he was pastor of a Baptist church. Uh, And it threw his church into turmoil. What about all these people he's baptized? I say, you know, it has has no bearing. Though he was a false believer, uh, the church still authorized him to do it on their behalf. It had nothing to do with him or his salvation. Though obviously that's not optimal. Nobody wanted that. But it doesn't change the... the, uh, Propriety of the baptism of those that he baptized duly authorized by his church. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. What do you think of uh, Schreiner's edited book? I think he was just a general editor, but it's in the bookstore down here on baptism. Because I think some of what you said doesn't really line up with what that book said about baptism. baptism. Yeah, there are some things uh, in there that I, I would disagree with, but again, they're sort of commonly held views. I think what I'm saying is most consistent with the Baptist faith and message 2000 and, um, Baptists can be and have been inconsistent. And we do, again, we draw lines at different places, but everybody agrees that there's a line somewhere, you know, let's say if someone says they got, Saved and they were genuinely saved, and then they got baptized by the Mormon church. I don't know any Baptist that would take that. Right? So between there and eternal security, where is the line? Well, we're all drawing it somewhere. The question is, based on what? And I, I I understand that there are differences of opinion. My my main goal here is to make you Think through so that you're not just simply defaulting to something, and you're not in in effect allowing people to believe they've been obedient to the Lord when they have not. That's why I think you have to have that conversation. Because yeah, I've had this conversation, just it comes up all the time. It's yeah, it does. So this is a real issue. Yeah, it does. Uh, Uh-huh. but we don't teach in our church in order to believe that you are saved by water. Pepper. Well, I, and I, I know that, and here's where I, I like, line up with John Owen who said one time of some people that were had a similar view, he said, well, I believe they believe more in their hearts than they do in their heads. Like I've had this conversation with Bob Russell and, you know, you pin him down, Bob, does Bob believe that if you die before you get baptized, you know, do you go to hell? Just be, you know, if you've had a profession of faith, but you die before your, he said, no, well, if you, if you make that exception, then you're, you you can not say you believe it's essential, right? Cause you said, well, then there's somebody that gets to heaven without it. Uh, and here's where Baptist and Christian churches should agree. Uh, neither of us are saying it's optional. It is not optional. It is absolutely incumbent on every believer to follow Christ in baptism. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, our issue is to I get Methodists and Presbyterians that won't join our church after they, you know, they're like, well, this is a great church. It's yeah. biblical preaching. They think I am Baptist. I love Baptist. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I almost should change over. But, yeah. That's like. You know, I know that the restoration movement hasn't always been in agreement with the Baptist, but. That's right. Yeah. I can't them in the well, and that's the thing. That's why I say we're all just trying to be honest with our views. And, and But I'm even arguing that we should also be consistent. And I think there are a lot of Baptists who espouse this, but then in practice don't really walk it out. I'm sure the same thing is true at some Christian churches. And especially as you get larger, it, it's easy just to be sloppy yeah. in your processes, you know.